making this promise to preach uh, now that the time is here reminds me of a story of a man who was seriously ill. And he called for his pastor to come and pray for him. And he said, if you pray for me to recover, and I do, I promise that I will give $25,000 toward the new church building. Well, the pastor prayed for the man, and the man got well. The pastor tactfully tried to remind the man of his pledge, but there was no response. Finally, the pastor boldly told the man, Do you remember you promised to give $25,000 to the new church building? I did, said the man. Well, that should give you some idea of how sick I really was. Pastor Samuel, I guess I was not sick enough to break my promise this morning. <laughs> so here I am, Lord. Use me. What a blessed morning. I feel saturated by the gospel. I feel saturated by the word. I feel saturated by Christ. And I thank you all because it is because we are gathered here that that's even possible. It's such a wonderful feeling. Um, and I hope to continue this time of learning about God through his word. Um, continuing on how we've learned about God's kingdom on earth, the reign of God's kingdom through his believers. Um, it's been a wonderful sermon series, and I have learned so much and been so challenged. Today, I'd like to continue that focus, but instead of learning about how God calls us to show his reign, to display his reign, to be representatives of his kingdom, I'd like to focus on how do we actually get into this kingdom we've been learning so intently about. So I'd like to call this the call of the kingdom. So to begin to answer this question, this call, let us turn to Scripture and read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. If you have a pew Bible, this is on page 851. Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. The word of the Lord for us this morning. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever, 
loses his life for me will find it. What good would it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the glory of your word. We thank you for your kingdom reign. Lord, we thank you for teaching us who you are and what we mean and what we are here to do. Lord, I pray that this morning that your word would be boldly and clearly preached. I pray that my heart would be settled and that those here would be open and that we would all be softened. And Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we're going to focus on God's call into his kingdom reign. We will discover what the call of Christ to join him in his kingdom rule includes. We're then going to shift gears and see what the cost of the kingdom is to our lives. This is a fascinating and wonderful time in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a high point in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a, this is a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. This is where the, the story turns. But there's a wonderful background because right before this, in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read that Jesus has done one of his most incredible miracles, the feeding of the 4,000. And Jesus has displayed signs, and Jesus has done miracles in the name of God. And yet we read soon after that that many come and ask him for more signs to prove he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one that many were waiting for. And then we are at this point. Christ moves away to this city. And I think there's, a, there's an idea here that Christ is moving to have a serious discussion with his disciples, one in, without the crowds around. We've read in Matthew before that the disciples have said, this is the son of the living God. But now Jesus confronts them in peace and tranquility and asks them the most important question, the question of the kingdom. And he listens to their response. Look at verses 13 and 14. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Right here, we see that there was an active and healthy debate among the people of the land about the identity of Christ. This was a hot topic, okay? This was today, YouTube, Twitter, blogs. This would be the question that everybody would be asking. The nation of Israel was excitedly waiting the promised deliverer, this Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one who would release them from the bondage of the Roman oppressors the one who would defeat all the enemies of God and God's chosen nation. But there's something interesting about the answers. Wonderful prophets, aren't they? Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. Yet these answers did not point to the Messiah. They pointed to the ones who would come to prepare the nation for the Messiah. They were the wrong answers. The answers given of the people were still anticipating the coming of the one who would, release, who would release them from bondage. 
But even in the midst of these debates, Christ was not interested too much in what other people thought, what other people said. Nope, he uses debate to focus the question squarely on him. In verse 15 we read, But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? That is the question we must all confront. That is the question that God prepares us to find the way into his kingdom. The main point of the question is to acknowledge who Christ is, his true identity. Others have opinions, but what ultimately matters is who we think and believe Christ to be. The entire kingdom of heaven rests on this true identity of Christ. How should we answer? How can we answer? Let's look at Peter's response. You know, I believe Peter spoke for the disciples. In verse 16 we read, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Simple. Simple answer, wasn't it? But have you thought about that confession? Have you thought about how incredible that was? Do we really understand the power of Peter's confession? What was Peter really admitting to here? I'd like to talk about that. Peter was admitting that Jesus Christ, this man standing before him, was exactly that person that the entire Old Testament had predicted would come to save Israel. This man was the king told about over and over throughout the Old Testament. He was God's Messiah, another word for anointed one. Over and over again in the Old Testament, this coming Messiah was predicted by over 20 Old Testament writers hundreds of years before Jesus was born. For example, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses calls him a prophet. In 1 Chronicles 17, he is God's son and rules over God's kingdom. In Isaiah 9, he is called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. We read in Jeremiah 23 that he is the righteous branch of David and will reign as king. And finally in Psalm 2, verses 2 and 6 and 7, he is God's anointed. He is God's king on God's holy mountain. He is the son of God. Wow. All of that packed into that one confession of Peter. Do you see Peter's confession? Do you see the power? Does this power mean the same thing to us? Does this confession today mean the same thing to you and I? Does the fact that Jesus is the one predicted from the beginning of time that would come and rule over all of God's creation make you pause? Does it make you shake and quiver with awe at the glorious power of God becoming flesh in the man named Jesus of Nazareth? The call of the kingdom begins with this weighty truth. To call Jesus Christ the Messiah, the Son of God himself, is to recognize the indescribably powerful man Christ was, the authority Christ had as God over all creation, and especially over our lives. He is the king of the kingdom of heaven, isn't he? If you believe Peter's confession, do you also believe that Christ has that kind of authority over your life and my life? Is he truly Lord of our lives? Believing in who Christ is is by definition a recognition and understanding of his power and authority from God the Father to rule everyone, everything, but especially those who call themselves his disciples, his followers, his worshipers. It's an important point. It's an important scene. So what happens next in this pivotal moment in the history of all of humanity? What is Jesus' reply to Peter's amazing confession? In verse 17, we read, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, 
but by my Father in heaven. God is the one who has spoken through Peter and reveals the truth of this king to us. Not through Peter's own flesh and blood, which is another way of saying through Peter's own cognitive abilities, through his ability in his mind to understand this truth. We cannot get to this truth on our own. Whatever God is speaking to and through us about Christ, the result is an amazing truth of who Christ is, his identity, his true reign over all the whole of creation. The call of the kingdom requires God to reveal these truths to us and for us to then believe in them and turn to Christ as our Lord, our King, and to then display his reign over us in our everyday lives. This important confession, this important call to the kingdom, when it happens, it is not a coincidence that Christ immediately begins to teach his disciples about his church, the body of disciples that will display his kingdom reign on earth. In verses 18 and 20, we read, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The kingdom of heaven is founded upon Christ, his true identity, and our faith in this reality. Answering this question, getting this question correct, results in the formation of the church around the faith and person of Peter due to the confession of Jesus as the Messiah. The church is the physical manifestation of this kingdom reign. And the gates of hell will not close this kingdom. The gates will never be overpowered by hell. The truth that Christ teaches us helps us to learn this critical fact. The call of the kingdom to know who Christ is is followed by the call to become part of a corporate body of disciples. We are saved as individuals by our knowledge and belief in Christ as Messiah, but we are saved into a body of believers that express and represent the reign of kingdom of heaven on earth. And although much more could be said of this important scripture in relation to God's church and the power given to her, time constraints and my focus this morning pressed me to move on. That is the call of the kingdom. But now I'd like to talk about the cost of the kingdom. Now that Christ has established to his disciples who he really is and how this truth will lead to the creation of the corporate body of disciples, what then does Christ teach his disciples? The second dimension of today's sermon, that being that the correct answer of the call of the kingdom will result in a great cost. As quickly as Peter's confession of who Christ is and Christ's kingly proclamation of what the church will be are over, Christ begins to detail the cost he will incur to complete his mission on earth. In verse 21 we read, From that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Suffering? Killed? Resurrection? No, no, no. What's this? What is this? This does not sound right, does it? Christ is detailing something very difficult for his disciples to hear. There is going to be a terrible cost to Jesus Christ precisely because he is the Messiah. His kingdom is somehow built upon suffering, sacrifice, and a resurrection of some kind. 
but how can the king suffer? These are questions that must have immediately come to the disciples. This would have been another unbelievable truth. How do we know? In verse 22 we read, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What a change. In contrast to when God had just revealed his truth through Peter's confession, just a few moments later, Peter's own flesh and blood decide to help Peter reveal some more truth. Peter's on a roll. I love Peter, right? He's always on a roll. But here we have a different outcome. For Peter, an observant Jew, the confession of Christ and the cost of his kingdom was an impossible truth. It is not normal for any king to suffer willingly, never mind the king of heaven and earth. In contrast to when God speaks through us and Christ is glorified, when we decide we know what's best, when the true cost of being a Christian is what we think we know, when we know what's best about what our lives should be as Christians, we do the work of God's enemy, Satan. Satan, the fallen angel who is under the authority of Christ himself, but Satan is in line behind Christ. Are you as well? Is Christ your line leader? Are you making up things? Are you telling Christ how you will serve him, or are you letting him follow? Or are you following him and letting him lead you? With all those wonderful prophecies of the Messiah, they're all over the Old Testament, and all the glorious expectations of power and victory over the oppressors, what so many of God's chosen people neglected was the cost of being this Messiah. God's suffering servant, the man of sorrows, the son of man. Listen to the verses in Isaiah 53. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. There it is, friends, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, God's son, the anointed one, the Messiah, came to die for our sins. But we know this, don't we? We do know this. We're Baptists, right? We are comfortable with this truth, aren't we? We're people of the book, right? Praise God. Amen. I've heard it said that sometimes Baptists liken themselves to God's new chosen people. What a dangerous title to take on. The last chosen people of God. Mm. The Jews rejected Christ. And he knew they would do this all along. He knew the cost. He paid the cost. But Christ does not leave us to meditate on his cost too long. No, dear believer, Christ teaches us without fail. The first cost of the kingdom of heaven was Christ to pay. The next cost is ours. His disciples on earth. We will pay this cost. In verse 24 and 25 we read that Jesus said to his disciples, 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Christ is so very clear. In order to be a disciple of Christ, we must deny ourselves and take up that shameful cross of sacrifice. It is the only way to stay close to Christ as his follower. If we continually try to save our lives, protect our lives from these costs as believers, we will lose ourselves in this world and sever our ties to Christ's true plan for us. But if we lose ourselves in order to find Christ, we will also then, and only then, experience the true life of blessings in knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior. We will find our true lives. We need to have priorities that the world sees as ridiculous and will lead to nothing according to the world but loss. But God sees as obedience. God sees as obedience to his kingdom reign. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor martyred in World War II Germany as he stood up to the evil all around him. Listen to what he had to say on accepting the call of the kingdom. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's pretty simple, right? When Christ calls us to be little Christs, Christians, he calls us to walk the same walk, to talk the same talk, and follow in his footsteps all the way to the cross. This cost of discipleship, a life committed to Christ, is very high, brothers and sisters. We can contrast this to the free offer of the gospel, the good news of Christ's purpose on this earth. But let's get this straight. Entering the kingdom reign of God is costly for us. It is not cheap. It costs Christ his physical life, but more importantly, the crushing anguish and spiritual pain of being separated from God, his Father. How can we sacrifice anything less? We definitely can't sacrifice anything that even comes close to that experience. And we certainly cannot sacrifice more than Christ did on the cross. So ask ourselves, what have we sacrificed? Have we sacrificed our notions of what it means to be a true disciple of Christ? Have we sacrificed our selfishness, our rights to our body, our heart, and mind to serve the king? Again, listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say on this topic of God's grace, that special favor God has shown to all he has called into his kingdom and have subsequently responded. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Do you see that one of the most important costs that we first must pay is the cost of giving up our private, individual, self-centered selves in order to become part of the unified body of Christ. A place where repentance is declared, baptism is displayed, discipline is lovingly utilized, confession is commonplace, discipleship is sought. The cost of the cross is preached, and the living Jesus Christ is worshipped at all times. What else must we sacrifice? We've got to give up who we are to join this body, right? We've got to make a commitment to each other 
That is a form of sacrifice. What other costs are out there? Fear not, Christ is still teaching us. We must lose our lives. When we accept the call, we must be ready to endure personal pain and suffering, be publicly ridiculed, and be content to crucify our own worldly lusts, our own desires, our own selfishness, in order to follow the one who is our king. The pride of our lives must be extinguished, or we will lose our ability to truly understand and live out the king's reign. This is a process, a loss that starts from the inside out. Let's look at Peter one more time. But this time, let's hear from Peter after he gets it. And boy, does he get it right. Just read the first letter of Peter to see how well he gets it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, Peter writes, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Wow. Now I can read 1 Peter and understand. This is the man who rebuked Christ, and now this is the man who preaches so weightily and so carefully and so deeply the cross of suffering. Christ is our example. He is our model. Carry your cross as he carried his, and untold joy and glory awaits you. But Christ being the pastor that he is and the sermon that he's preaching does not leave us without giving us an application. Because I'm surely not going to. You know. uh, he also leaves us with a warning. In verse 26, we get our application. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? At the extreme, there is still no argument for holding on to our lives in order to experience worldly treasures or worldly pleasures. What we forfeit is the ability to become what Christ wants us to become if we do this. And what we will not become is mature and perfect in him. We will not become like him. The application is that Christ is defining what losing your life really means. A wonderful question. It is the opposite of gaining everything the world teaches us to gain. The priorities the world teaches us to memorize and live out. What are some of those priorities? Power, selfishness, independence, material riches, empty knowledge, prideful displays. Remember again that Jesus is talking to his disciples, the men he gathered to love each other and continue his ministry and build his church around. The losing and gaining of the whole world is not a material reality. It all begins and ends in our hearts. Many of us here have not and will never experience all the worldly pleasures and all the worldly riches. But are we yearning for them? Are we yearning for the pleasures of the world? What are our heart's desires? Have you begun to lose the desires of the world in your heart? It is so easy to walk around and tell everyone we have been good and all those external behaviors the world can see most easily. Right? We've heard, we don't suffer from violent behavior, addictions, greed, infidelity, lying, stealing. But from there, we even extend our desire to keep our lives, to not lose them by limiting our view of the church. We even go so far as to state that we don't really 
need to be a part of a church body, do we? Christ meets us where we are at, right? We don't want to sacrifice our personal time and talents to his church, to his body, to his authority. We don't want to experience the cost of being with imperfect people, people who may think differently than us, people who may test us, amen? And we don't ever want to be in a place where we might have to publicly confess our sins, the deep sins in our hearts, or be publicly disciplined, or be held accountable to another believer in a meaningful discipleship relationship. We don't want to face the cross or listen to all of Jesus' words. We want a Savior who suffered, not a Lord who calls us to suffer as well. We want to hide our sins and have Christ conquer our enemies and live that kind of life, a life of hollow victory. We want to remake Christ. We want to remake Christ in our own image, an image tainted by our sin and rebellion. But in the end, Christ gives us a firm warning for all these tendencies in our hearts. There is a final judgment of the king that awaits all of humanity, Believers and non-believers alike. And for the believer whom this message is taught to, we are in danger of being judged according to our lost potential to serve the king. Listen again to verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. The call of the kingdom in our lives is here now. The judgment is coming but you can answer this call now. Do not taste death in your life without making this decision to serve the king. Follow the king. Love the king and enter his kingdom. Truly repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Listen, dear brothers and sisters. Listen closely, those of you who are struggling to answer this call before you. Listen closely, all of you who are struggling to count the cost of Christ in your life. Christ came to die in our place, take the place for us instead of experiencing God's perfect and righteous judgment against us. And let us not be misled or deceived. God created the heavens and the earth. God created humanity to reflect him and to experience a special relationship with him. God is perfect. God is love. And we chose to reject his perfect love and his authority over us, his perfect plan for our lives. We decided to go out on our own and reject him. And now we stand condemned for our rebellion, a rebellion that goes to the deepest parts of our minds and hearts, our bodies and our souls. But we are now able to be forgiven for our rejection and rebellion. We are able to be forgiven because of the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Christ, who lived perfectly on this earth, loved perfectly on this earth and died perfectly on the cross. Taking on the penalty of our sins and allowing us to have a relationship to God restored. And for all of, all of those of you who would answer this question the exact same way Peter did, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. You are God Jesus. You should continue that answer and say, I will worship you. I will repent of my sins. I will ask God to forgive me in your name 
and I will experience your beautiful kingdom reign in my life now and forever. Have you made this decision to heed the call of Christ? If you have or would like more information, please come visit with either myself or Pastor Samuel, and we would enjoy nothing more than talking with you and praying with you. To all of you who have committed to display God's kingdom reign in your lives, I commend you for making this decision, hearing and responding to the call of the kingdom and committing to serve the king no matter what the cost. I praise God for you and implore you to continue to grow in Christ and allow more of your life to reflect his. More of your life to be under his authority and more of your life focused on the work of his body of which all of us were saved into for a special purpose. Let us pray. This morning, God, we have counted the cost. Lord, this morning, we have heeded the call. And Lord, I pray that we would follow no one and nothing, no idea, no image, no idol, no thought other than you. Lord, help us. Help us to understand how to follow you. Lord, give us the cost to pay, and we will pay them. Lord, we pray that we become more like your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would suffer to our own selfishness, that we would die to our own selves, that we would rid ourselves of the sins and the thoughts, the misdeeds, the dirtiness of our souls, and that, Lord, that we would accept your promise that you wash us white as snow. This morning, Lord, we pray, I pray, give us a new life to follow you. Give us the strength. Let it all be to your glory. Let it all be to bless your name because of the work on the cross and the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.